Hello and welcome to the Politico Nerdcast, where we bring you inside the stories of the White House and geek out on the amazing circus of American politics. It's Thursday, December the 8th, and I'm Kristen Roberts, your host. Here are the numbers that mattered this week. One, the number of visits that the EPA has had as of Monday with the Trump transition team. 60, the percentage of voters who had a more favorable view of Donald Trump after the carrier deal. Four, the number of events booked at Trump's D.C. hotel since the election by countries or companies interested in swaying the incoming administration. And 204, that's how many weeks until Election Day 2020. Yeah, we went there. So grab your calculators and enjoy the Politico Nerdcast. Here we go again. Hello, Charlie Matessian. Hey, Kristen. How's it going? It's going very well. Thank you for asking. Shane Goldmacher, welcome back. Merry afternoon. Merry afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> We're bringing and, back Merry Christmas. Um, he's not in office yet, as Corey was told. And we should say a very special welcome to Nancy Cook, who is covering transition for us. Hi, Nancy. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be on the podcast for the first time. Let's get to our first data point. It is the number one suggested by Nancy. That's the number of visits that the EPA has had as of Monday from the Trump transition team. Now, Nancy, before we dive into this EPA story and Ivanka Trump's apparent desire to be climate czar, let's lift up a bit. Please tell our listeners about the landing teams that the agencies have set up, what they're supposed to be doing, and how the Trump transition team is using them or not. Sure. So basically, the Trump transition team has all these different layers to it. And sort of the sexy, glamorous part of it is happening in New York in Trump Tower, where Trump and his small circle of advisors is meeting with all of these people primarily for cabinet picks. And then down here in D.C. in this really schlubby, gross government building um, are the landing team members. And these are people that the transition team has picked who are Uh, you know, experts on their different policy areas and who maybe have worked for the federal government before. And their job is basically to go into federal agencies and do the handoff of power from the Obama administration to the Trump administration. But they're kind of like the D-list actors of the transition team. Uh, You know, they're not taken that seriously by New York. Uh, They're not taken that seriously by Trump. They really don't have anything to do with the cabinet picks. Um, And so subsequently, they just haven't had that much contact yet with the federal agencies. And that could really slow Trump down when he takes office and wants to start governing on day one. Is this abnormal? I think there's historically a divide between the people picking the cabinet level people and the people picking the people below the cabinet. Um, But I do think the fact that they're in separate cities uh, and that Donald Trump is so hands-on about the cabinet and so not about everything else, uh, in talking to people involved in the transition, he has little interest in in talking about who the undersecretaries are for the most part. He's interested in picking that person and letting them implement their vision, which is one of the reasons these landing teams seem pretty disempowered at the moment, right? They're going to go take notes, find out what's happening, but like maybe not have jobs. Uh, That's maybe not as appealing of a job as you thought you were having uh, if you say deregistered as a lobbyist. And it's also, it is a little bit unusual because during the Obama transition in 2008, Yes, the landing teams were separate from the people that picked the cabinet, but they were already 
in the agencies right after the election. You know, they all had security clearances. They were already working on the handoff of power. And the other difference was, was that in that transition, uh, John Podesta oversaw it. And so he really was kind of like this hands-on manager who could go between President-elect Obama and the landing teams and all these different groups, whereas part of the issue here is that Vice President-elect Pence is kind of supposed to be doing that, but he also is still the governor of Indiana, and he's also, you know, making victory tour laps with Trump. And so he just has a lot of responsibilities. What's happening at the EPA? Well, so basically, there's been one person that has shown up. The EPA administrator, Gina McCarthy, said, you know, this is sort of a problem. We've had one person come. This was before Thanksgiving. Uh, You know, our colleague Sarah Wheaton had a really nice story today just talking about how at the National Security Council, not all of the people who uh, are on the landing teams have even gotten clearance yet. And so that means people legally just can't get the information. And so there's just not really this handoff of power happening. And what have you heard about what's happening at the other agencies? Well, so there's a lot of different things happening. Uh, DHS, Homeland Security, for instance, only has two people on the landing teams. You know, as of last week, they had had initial conversations, but they're not really in there. And that's sort of a key uh, agency that Trump will want to interface with because the Department of Homeland Security is the one that's going to be building that wall or fence or whatever it turns out to be. And that's kind of a mishmash of a department. So having two people, I mean, they have all these different groups that are stuffed into Homeland Security. So there are not two people dealing with the issues that cover transportation there and all kinds of everything. I mean, it's not just the what you think of as Homeland Security. It deals with ICE and deals with immigration. And so two people is probably not enough to handle the breadth of of content at DHS. You mentioned, though, Ivanka at the beginning. Uh, I think, uh, you know, the, the rollout of her as climate czar, she met with Al Gore this week. Uh, I'm not sure this is so much about Ivanka Trump influencing Donald Trump as Ivanka Trump maintaining the Ivanka Trump brand. Uh, She was supposedly a moderating influence on her father on immigration. You saw how that went on the campaign trail. The New York Times today says she wants to focus on women's issues now. Uh, These also happen to, you know, things that fit perhaps with her brand and her appeal uh, to young people and young women in particular. Climate change is big. Women's issues is big. Uh, and she's also sort of floated the idea of uh, child care is the stuff she cares about. I agree that I think this Ivanka Trump for climate change thing is, you know, sort of a more of a marketing idea for her than it is really a policy thing. Because right after she met with Al Gore, you know, it, it now seems like, uh, you know, Trump has picked the Oklahoma attorney general for the head of the EPA, who is really, you know, a huge anti-climate change person and wants to roll back a bunch of regulations. And so that happened sort of right after that meeting. This is actually an extraordinary thing to to be discussing, whether the first daughter has <laughs> more of an interest in marketing her own brand through her position, uh, official or unofficial at the White House, or whether she's going to have an impact on policy. If she really is only concerned about her own brand, and this is not um, something she intends to take up on behalf of her father or any of these issues, why um, are Ivanka and Jared moving to Washington? Uh, well, Ivanka and Jared are two different people. And I think Jared very much is going to have an influence on Donald Trump and Donald Trump's policies. Um, but what was striking when Al Gore met with her, he went on television later that day, went on MSNBC, and he was talking about it. He said, it's no secret that Ivanka Trump is devoted to climate change issues. Excuse me, it is very much a secret. She never once spoke about it in the entirety <laughs> of the campaign. No one I knew knew that Ivanka Trump cared about climate change as an issue. Uh, and so that struck me just as like, that's an awfully interesting thing for him to have said that this is no secret when in fact, 
you're the one making it publicly known for the first time. Charlie, what's your take on this Trump transition? Is it as odd and non-traditional as it seems? Well, on, on the uh, EPA part, I think it makes sense to me at least that mm-hmm. they nobody would show up at the uh, you know on the EPA landing team, or there would be questions about you know why was Scott Pruitt named given uh, you know some of his views. But it makes perfect sense when you when you if you'd listen to the way the campaign played out and the way Republicans have been talking about the EPA for years mm-hmm. now. Uh, I mean, this is the most loathed agency in government to Republicans in the 2010 elections. They, they uh, helped win back the uh, House majority by campaigning against the EPA. They have great strength in a lot of the oil and gas states and, you know, places where, uh, you know, uh, coal uh, is king. And in all of those places, the EPA is despised. And it's not just the energy producing states. It's also a lot of the farm states have a lot of hostility and animus toward the EPA. It's almost like in, in 94, when, when Republicans won the, the uh, majority of the Republican Revolution that year, they also had an agency that wore the black hat, and it was OSHA. I mean, nobody talks about OSHA anymore. You know, I think it was you know, just sort of uh, neutered at, at that point. Uh, but that was the agency that all these members hated. And, and many of them were small businessmen who said that that was the sole cause they ran for Congress was because they couldn't stand dealing with the regs. And I think you're seeing a lot of that now with EPA. Pruitt being the, the perfect example. And, and the most interesting thing about the EPA is that uh, last year Pew did a re- did some research on the uh, each agency and how the two parties felt about the agencies and the agency that had the biggest partisan divide in terms of their favorability rating was the EPA. Eight out of ten Democrats gave it favorable ratings, but less than four out of ten Republicans thought the same thing. So it is the most divisive agency going right now at this moment. I think that your point is really good, that it kind of makes sense that the Trump transition wouldn't be super invested in the EPA. And we've seen the same at the Labor Department. There's not really anyone showing up there. But I do find it striking that they haven't had people at DHS who are really engaged or the National Security Council, um, even at HHS, which oversees the implementation of Obamacare and which presumably will be involved in the rollback. I mean, I think those are signals that even the agencies that are doing things that they care about, they're not in. I think it's a really smart point to make because that is, I think, the the competence part of this equation. That's been, to me, there's been two big issues hanging over the transition. One is, would he be able to uh, put together a competent administration? And number two was, does this... uh, person have the temperament to be president on the competent side competence side there is this issue of the landing team staffing these places getting ready to uh you know get rolling uh right after he takes the oath of office and and it is a little bit troubling when you look at dhs and some of the others that the how slow they've been going but on the other side to me it looks makes perfect sense that Republicans want to blow up the Department of Labor and EPA. So, you know, they're not going to pay any attention. about closing it. A lot Mm -hmm. of the Republicans said they were going to abolish the EPA. Yeah, they questioned the very viability uh, of of, of its existence. They don't even, you know, think it has a mandate to exist. And so that part is easy to understand. But I think Nancy's point is really smart. Like the others could be a little bit more worrisome. And I kind of wonder, too, Shane brought this up earlier. I mean, I think that the Trump transition is counting so much on the cabinet secretaries to basically, like, take ownership of these agencies and run them and set the policy. And I think that'll be really different from the Obama administration. Like, I've talked to Obama officials that thought that, you know, the first two years of the Obama administration, there was, like, too tight of a reign on the cabinet secretaries and they didn't have enough autonomy. This is going to be exactly the opposite if it goes the way that I'm hearing it's going to go where the cabinet secretaries will have like a huge amount of rain. And I think that will be a really different governing style. Well, there is something to be said about establishing your leadership team quickly and allowing it to do the job. 
Sure. Let's get to our <laughs> next data point, because Americans don't give a darn about how untraditional Donald Trump is. The data point is 60. That's the percentage of voters who had a more favorable view of Trump after the carrier deal, according to a Politico Morning Consult poll. Here's another. 69. That's the percentage of Republican voters who say it is acceptable for the president of the United States to directly negotiate with private business, which must must be driving some Main Street Republicans nuts. Shane, if you are a conservative Republican, how do you read these numbers? Uh, this is not the conservative Republican doctrine that they've been pushing on Capitol Hill for years. Uh, they talk about not picking winners and losers, and Donald Trump has talked about winning, and pick, winning for him is picking winners, and he wants to be a winner. Solyndra. And so, <laughs> but for, for him, Carrier is more important than Solyndra. He will take the, the win, the public relations victory of being declared a job saver, and for the thousand people whose jobs were, were saved by Donald Trump, they don't care that he is potentially threatening a company that has large government contracts, and they certainly uh, don't care that he picked up the phone and talked to them if this is seen as a breach of conservative Republican protocol. These are their jobs, and they were saved. Uh, and there's a great story from the New York Times right after the election talking to all the people at Carrier who were so thrilled by his election and said, it's going to be on Trump. Like, our jobs, he said he was going to save all of our jobs. Uh, and the reaction at the time was like, I didn't really remember promising it that much specifically. It's like, well, no, you very much did. Um, and so this is, I think, the extent to which the leader of a party and a president can change a party's orthodoxies. Capitol Hill Republicans, for the most part, are lining up behind him because Republican voters are going to be lining up behind him. They may not be supporting him, but they are not speaking out against this. Uh, and that notion that 69% of Republican voters uh, agreed that a president should directly negotiate with private businesses, this is the opposite of small government conservatism. So really, Charlie, what does this mean for the identity of the Republican Party? Well, I think maybe in the conservative think tanks, there are folks uh, that are a little worried about the, the direction that Donald Trump is going, but nobody who has to get elected to office for a living actually cares or would ever challenge him. It's really, it's brilliant politics uh, in a lot of ways. And I think it, for what it reveals about the Republican Party is it reveals the direction of the next Republican Party. It's not your dad's Republican Party. It's not even the Republican Party of Newt Gingrich. In the 90s, Republican Party picked up a populist wing when they picked up Congress, uh, and they uh, continued to sort of nurture that wing, and it finally came into existence in, in 2016. It's a very different Republican Party. It's a rural party. It is a uh, party that is based in lots of places that Republicans haven't been before. It is not wedded to uh, conservative orthodoxy on free trade. It's not wedded to conservative orthodoxy on a ton of different issues. I mean, we're going to watch this play out, but it's going to look a lot more like Donald Trump's vision of conservatism than the vision of conservatism we've become accustomed to uh, over the last decade, I think. I was talking. I was talking to a Republican uh, up on the Hill this week who was just shell-shocked still by how much Donald Trump was changing their party so quickly. Some of it they were very excited about. They said, we have been defined as the Wall Street favorable party for forever, for decades. And all of a sudden, he's going to come in, he's going to make us seem like we're the party of the working people. Uh, And this is, you know, an enormous opportunity for them. So they may not like all of the specifics, but they see a lot of upside to this. Well, this is really interesting, Charlie. One of the numbers that you suggested we talk about, I'm going to bring up right here, was eight. Clinton only beat Trump 51 to 43 among union households. Is this the beginning of the shift of the blue working class white, blue collar working class whites to Republicans? I think it's part of of the trend toward uh, Republicans. What I think was 
uh, one of the most interesting aspects of the elections was that there aren't a lot of places left in this country where white voters instinctually gravitate toward the Democratic Party. That is, uh, lower middle class whites or blue collar uh, whites. And in those places, you know, they tend to be in the uh, upper Mississippi River Valley uh, and in certain and all the places, you know, maybe even eastern Ohio, uh, Mahoning Valley, places like that. And in all those places, they moved uh, considerably toward Donald Trump. And so uh, in many ways, he is sort of picking off the last remaining white working class voters that still remain in the Democratic Party. And if he keeps doing things like uh, the, the carrier deal or talking about trade or even he's smart enough to go after, uh, you know, a, a local labor leader, but not in the terms that you would have heard conservatives use in the past. He talks about union dues, things like that. Uh, and I think it just shows that he is speaking to uh, union members in a way that la- big, big labor should be pretty worried about. And I think they are based on uh, what they saw in the exit polls. You're talking about when he went after Chuck Jones? Yeah. And it's it's he he, he talked not just about Jones, because you hear other conservatives talk about, you know, these scary big union bosses and things like that. But talking talking about issues like, oh, you should uh, decrease union dues, things like that, making a direct play toward uh, toward uh, union members. I mean, I think that is a different kind of rhetoric than we've heard from more orthodox or doctrinaire conservatives in the past. This isn't the only um, non-traditional thing he's been doing this week. He had um, a tweet that took more than half a billion dollars of market capitalization away from Boeing. Shane, walk us through that. Uh, He basically sent a tweet out in the morning and said, uh, Boeing, uh, you are charging us too much for my plane for Air Force One, and I'm going to cancel the contract. And it's uh, he overstated the amount of money. Uh, But I think that it fits both of these things fit into something that I think is really important that Trump is doing, which is he's using symbolism that regular voters understand to communicate past. And he uses Twitter for this talk about talking past the media, but he is talking past the media. You talk about that plane. It's the kind of thing that anyone sitting at home over the Christmas holidays is going to know. Donald Trump said he's canceling his own plane because it costs too much money. No, he didn't really cancel the plane. He really didn't get the (laughs) amount of money right. But like you kind of get that concept. Uh, I think it's the same thing about the calling Taiwan. You don't really understand the details and why this is diplomatic breaches, whatnot. You do understand that Donald Trump poked his finger in the eye of China and China didn't like it. And that's really all you got out of that. And I think the carrier deal that we just talked about is the same thing. He called and he's trying to stop private American businesses from taking their jobs out of this country. And yeah, the details are maybe sketchy and I don't really like all of them. Or maybe this isn't a, a good precedent for the American economy and it doesn't really matter on a you know structural scale. But he picked up the phone and he talked to this guy and it made me feel better about it. And I think that he is hitting those things that people intuitively understand. Simultaneously, he's establishing a new precedent, and that is getting countries and organizations that have some interests before the White House to book big dollar events at his hotel on Pennsylvania Avenue. Shane, you um, have been paying some close attention to this. I've seen you tweeting things about it. Um, I have a feeling that you have a feeling about it. Uh, Yeah, I think that uh, Donald Trump's hotel is going to be a place that people and organizations use to show Donald Trump that they are trying to win his favor. Uh, And the groups that that includes is the Republican Party, which is going to hold a big party there. Uh, It includes uh, the embassy of Azerbaijan, which is also holding a holiday type party there. It included the Heritage Foundation this week, which held an event there that they scheduled in the last recent weeks. And guess who's their keynoter? Mike Pence. 
Uh, you know, I think that it's is one of the many things that are conflicts that uh, I think people are going to be paying attention to, at least here, but I don't think voters care yet. We talk about polling numbers. There's a Bloomberg poll, 69% of American adults said they don't care about his businesses. He should not be forced to sell them uh, and divest from them. Uh, so it's likely he's going to keep them. He showed he wants to keep them, and that means people are going to be booking the, quote, presidential ballroom at Trump Hotel hot commodity. Next week, um, we will have December the 15th, which was supposed to be the date when Donald Trump announced what he was going to actually do with the businesses. As you say, he hasn't indicated that he really wants to get rid of them. In fact, he wants to hold on to them. Is there any reporting out there that would tell, tell us differently? No. I mean, uh, one of our colleagues, Darren Samuelson, and I are, have been working on this and reporting this out. But it just seems like basically there's an army of lawyers around town, uh, you know, corporate lawyers in the Trump Tower, um, political election law lawyers, Don McCann, who is the incoming White House counsel. And all of them are basically furiously trying to figure out different ways for them to structure some sort of deal so that Trump can stay involved in the business somehow or hold on to pieces of it. But does anyone really believe he's going to get rid of it all? I mean, I honestly, why, why would you if you're why him? Why would you? My, my guess is that you just come up with some sort of fig leaf legal arrangement so that he doesn't have, get hassled by the press all the time. But look, there, there's nothing in the polling that suggests that people really care that much. I mean, this was an issue throughout the campaign. There's just no reason for him, if you're Donald Trump, to think that it matters. He doesn't want to do it. You know, he's inclined to do whatever the heck he wants. So why would he disentangle himself for, from any of these, inter- uh, any of these interests? Well, and it's so complicated because I talked to one lawyer the other day where it's not really just how he disentangles itself. It's like all of these contracts that he has with all of these places that use his name to license his hotels, you know, all of those contracts likely would have things in them that said that he would still have to be part of the company. You know, he would still have to be part of the brand. And so if he himself divests of it, then you basically have to reopen all of these business development deals basically around the world, which is where he has those businesses. And that could be you know, a huge legal lift and quite tricky. Not undoable, but very complicated. I mean, this is something that's typically litigated during a campaign that, you know, the the Clinton people didn't actually talk that much about this issue. It didn't come up that much compared to many other Trump issues. Uh, it wasn't an issue that I think very many voters came to the polls thinking about. And he has a lot of flexibility to keep these businesses right now because there is no political pressure on him otherwise. Uh, and as we've seen, he's not that responsive to political pressure Anyway. In the first place. And there's no legal requirement that he gets rid of it either. I think so. that's a really important point to make. There is no legal requirement for him to divest. It might be standard practice for presidents to put their holdings and their investments in double-blind trusts, but they are not required to. For our next segment, let's all welcome Gabriel Benedetti, who is one of our political correspondents covering Democrats. Hi, Gabe. Uh, hey, Kristen. It's nice to have you with us. It is great to be here. Is this your first time on Nerdcast? This is my Nerdcast debut. Awesome. So here is your data point. It is the number 78 because that is how old Joe Biden will be in 2020. Gabe, Joe Biden spent this week teasing a 2020 campaign. And on Monday, he said he was, quote, not committing to not running, which sounds a lot like I really wish I ran in 2016. Is this more than a joke? Uh, unclear because it's Joe Biden, so it's really difficult to tell what he's actually saying here. But to make a long story short, he spent a lot of time in the Capitol this week, which means that he spent a lot of time surrounded by reporters who, you know, wanted to hear about what he's going to do with his life. And he said, yeah, I'm running in 2020, but not really, but I am. So 
to make a long story short, he really made the lives of a lot of Democratic leaders pretty difficult because they do have to think about this kind of thing. But he's going to be, let's just say, he's going to be really old in 2020. He's not going to run. Does anybody here really think he's going to run? The guy, he would be a, a, a what is it, octogenarian the by the time his uh, term ended? Like, Midterm here, octogenarian. Yeah. You can coin well, it here, now. Here's the thing with, with Biden. And, and, you know, Biden is, by all accounts, you know, a, you know, a good person, especially by Washington standards. But like he's a let's be honest. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but let's be honest. He's like a vain, egotistical man. And I mean that in the best way, if that's even possible. So, like, you know, he just he can't stand the idea of people not talking about him. That's who he is. Totally. And the reason that I wanted to talk about this, and the reason that I think this is actually interesting mm-hmm. and not just the vice president being kind of annoying to fellow mm-hmm. Democrats. People in the leadership of the Democratic Party are pretty pissed about this because they've been spending the last month saying, we have to move the party in a new direction. Thank you, Joe Biden and Barack Obama, for your service. On to the next one. If Joe Biden makes them take him seriously, and you can't not take him seriously because he's the vice president, you know, it really does make things kind of difficult for the people at the leadership of the DNC. And if you are Joe Schmo senator who's thinking about running in four years, how do you say it's time to move the party forward? But also, I like Joe Biden. But also, forget Joe Biden. It's going to be so awkward, too. I mean, because I don't I don't mean to be disrespectful to the man. I mean, he's a really accomplished guy. And clearly, uh, you know, he's someone who's respected by his colleagues on both sides of the aisle. But, like, really, is the Democratic Party despite their deep love for octogenarians uh, in leadership there. But are they really going to nominate for president an 80-year-old white guy? They're, that's going to be the guy who, who handles the like, Obama coalition that they hand it off to? Like, no. No one's going to vote for that. I think the most important words that Gabe said is that Joe Biden was in the Capitol this week. Uh, it's, not, it's important to remember that Joe Biden loves the Capitol. This is his happy place. When you saw him as vice president walking through the halls of the Capitol, he is ecstatic. This is where he spent his career in the Senate. And the idea that his career is coming to an end is something he's publicly grappled with for the last year and a half. And here he is in a place that he loves, uh, looking at the end and thinking, well, maybe there's still a new beginning for me. Uh, if there was anywhere where he's going to start to feel especially nostalgic, I think it's that place. And it's, I think, another reason that we shouldn't take this too seriously, uh, along with his midterm octogenarian yeah, status. But, but people have asked him what he's going to do with his life. And there is room for someone like him in the party moving forward. Some people wanted him to be DNC chair. He said he's not going to do it. Look, do I think Joe Biden is going to be president? Of course not. I don't You're think on the he's record saying that. I think. You're now on the record saying yeah. that. There we go. Mark <laughs> it down. Mark it down, Mr. Vice President. Uh, but there's clearly a situation here brewing where Democrats are going to have to figure out a way to fit him into their plans for the next four years. Or he could be Secretary of State. Uh, I hear that job's still open. Yeah. You could, yeah. Let's talk about the race for the DNC. Who's in it? So we've got Keith Ellison, the congressman from Minnesota, who said this week that he would, if he jumped, if he were elected, he would resign his seat in Congress, which was probably the biggest roadblock to his getting elected. And then you have two state party chairs. There's Ray Buckley from New Hampshire, who's run a pretty successful party up there, uh, and Jamie Harrison from South Carolina, who's sort of seen as a young up and coming leader. Ellison is obviously the uh, front runner here, but what we've seen so far is it's not that exciting a race. I mean, this thing isn't going to be decided for two months, but you're just seeing a lot of people tiptoeing around the issue, which is, are we going to have another Bernie Sanders versus Hillary Clinton clash? What is the party actually going to do with itself? And, you know, the DNC is not in a lot of power right now, so everyone's kind of trying to figure out what to actually turn the DNC into. 
Who's having these conversations, Charlie and Gabe, when clearly the Democratic Party and Democrats in general are facing their own little existential crisis and it's going to play out in 2020. But right now they have to be grappling with who is going to lead their reboot, who is going to lead the re-envisioning process. Who is it? Well, I mean, I think they have to think in terms of the all the uh, discrete elements of the coalition, of the Democratic coalition. Like if it's, it's no coincidence, I think, that you're hearing names that come out of almost every distinguishable constituency in the Republican Party, every group. You know, you've got somebody from the abortion rights community being, you know, thinking about it. You've got, uh, you know, several Latino names have been thrown out there. You've got several African-American candidates out there. So you've got folks from almost every wing of the party. And I think that is the conversation going on right now. Like, who, who is best suited of all of those folks uh, to speak to all of them and to unite all of them? And when you look at people on the on Capitol Hill who are having this conversation, leaders in the Senate, leaders in the House, what they really want to do with this DNC race is avoid some of these really ugly fights that the party's definitely going to end up having because they don't think the DNC race in the end is all that consequential. They see this as a, more or less a glorified operative. And that's why a lot of them have basically said, listen, Ellison gets the Bernie wing. He understands the Clinton wing. Most people like him. Let's do this. Let's put this to bed. But as more and more people talk about this thing, there's more and more worry that this is going to turn into another fight like the primary, and you're going to have all these factions jumping in on each other. I mean, I think what we saw from the Republican Party, it is important for parties out of power to have fights. The idea that you're going to suppress your fights with each other uh, a month after a devastating loss seems like a, a big mistake to me. You need to work through who has a bigger chunk of the electorate, who has a bigger hold on the party. Uh, you know, does the Bernie Sanders wing, is there enough support for a Democrat that you don't need to raise big money? You know, probably not quite, but they're going to, they'd like to get close. Uh, you know, where do you come down on these issues? Where do you come down as a party on trade if the Republican Party becomes the anti-trade party? Uh, you know, there's a lot of things the Democrats, I think, do need to hash out. And the idea of, you know, we're going to keep all the same leaders in Congress. We're going to have a, a New York liberal lead the Senate and a San Francisco liberal lead the, the House. And uh, that's it. And we're done. And like, that's the face we're going to put forward does not seem like a recipe uh, to put them on a pathway back. I think they also have an additional hurdle that the Republicans didn't face when they were out of, out of power, meaning they first have to figure out the future of the Obama coalition. That's like right. Republicans have always known how to win. The question was always, could they put those elements together or would they alienate so many folks that they couldn't get a majority or at least a plurality victory? But the Democrats first have to figure out before anything else, before thinking about whether they can win, is the Obama coalition vi a viable force going forward. And I, and I think that is really the first thing that has to get resolved. Yeah. And what a lot of them are trying to wrestle with right now is whether it really is an either or conversation. I mean, there are a lot of people in the party saying we need to figure out how to win the working class white voters that in a lot of people's rather simplistic analysis handed this thing to Donald Trump. So there is this question. Do we double down on the Obama coalition and nominate someone who's just more exciting than Hillary Clinton? Or, you know, do we fight a, an entirely new battle and try and win over these working white class voters? What's the donor community say? The donor community is not a huge fan of Keith Ellison, which is something that he's trying to deal with right now. They do not necessarily see the DNC race as the number one question that we're dealing with right now. But you saw Haim Saban, who was a really major Democratic donor last week, basically call Keith Ellison an anti-Semite. Now, this is based on comments that he made in the 80s and 90s that he's apologized for, that he said were out of context. But this was a huge signal. This was a major Democratic donor who himself gave $7 million to the building of the DNC building itself, more or less 
saying, this guy is not fit to run our party. So these donors are more or less saying, we need to have a voice at the table. And what you're seeing right now is Henry Munoz, who is the finance chair of the DNC, and a large uh, voice in the Latino community within the party, trying to have a bigger voice in this race, trying to shape this race moving forward. The donor community, to make a long story short, is saying this fight is not over and this is a fight we need to have. If you think the Democratic Party is going to be able to survive without us, you're wrong. I mean, the Democratic Party does not have a Sheldon Adelson singular figure that is cutting them $100 million checks. But Haim Saban is among the closest that they have to that. And the idea that you would hand the control of the Democratic Party to somebody who he doesn't just find disagreeable, but uh, called an anti-Semite is, is, is really going to be an interesting decision for the party because he is so much of their financial super. Superstructure. He funds the building itself. Uh, he was one of the biggest donors to the Clinton Super PAC. And if you looked through those hacked Podesta emails, you saw an awful lot of emails back and forth from the very senior brass of the Clinton campaign to Haim Saban. He got his phone calls and emails answered instantaneously. Yeah. Now, let's be clear. Plenty of politicians, including Barack Obama and Nancy Pelosi, have survived without Haim Saban's explicit support. But what we haven't seen is someone who was seen as such a leader of that community Go out and say explicitly, you cannot nominate this person. You cannot support this person, which is all a way of saying, listen, the DNC race is not going to be decided for another two months. And for everyone who's out there saying that, oh, the AFL endorsement means it's over, this or that endorsement means it's over for Ellison, well, it's not. It's so awful that we're even talking about donors as almost as it's as a freestanding identity group like donor Americans think, you know, it's uh, <laughs> except you, that it is. Yeah, no, it, it just tells you how polluted things are. But I, I sort of have a question for you, though, Gabe. I know you've talked to a lot of these donor Americans. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what What is the likelihood that given what we've seen uh, in terms of Elizabeth Warren's uh, online army and, and Bernie Sanders ability to raise money online? Does that change the dynamic at all and maybe muffled? Uh, donor American voices or... Uh, yeah, well, uh, donor American voices are really worried about that. That's the reality. But the other reality is that the, some of this stuff has gotten sort of forgotten, but Elizabeth Warren is a really good fundraiser, not just online, but with donors. I mean, she talks about how much she doesn't like banks and whatnot, but there are other rich Americans who love her. Uh, Bernie Sanders did not raise large amounts of money. He didn't have a super PAC. But what a lot of Democrats are trying to figure out and what Ellison is frankly trying to figure out is whether that model can work for anyone else. So there is a big worry in New York and San Francisco that they're going to be sidelined. But listen, the reality is that the leader of the party right now is not Keith Ellison. It's Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi. And these are two of the best fundraisers in modern Democratic politics. These donors are not going anywhere. Chuck Schumer, I think, is going to be one of the most fascinating people of 2017. I think he would agree. <laughs> <laughs> That's it for us. Nancy Cook, thank you so much. Oh, thanks for having me. I loved it. Goodbye, Gabriel. Goodbye, Kristen. Shane Goldmacher, bye-bye. Bye. Charlie, go to work. All right. <laughs> thank you to our executive producer, Bridget Mulcahy, our illustrator, Bill Cookman, and our researcher, Zach Montalaro. And most importantly, thanks to our listeners. Talk to you next week. <laughs>